BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. A gag order, perhaps now, revoking Trump's bail and sending him to jail, perhaps later. Countdown Bulletin podcast coverage of the news that Jack Smith has asked Judge Tanya Chutkin to shut Trump up with a gag order. And with it, there is the tantalizing possibility that Smith also wants the judge to at least threaten Trump with revocation of his bail and the terms of his release. And that could mean jail. This would be the second gag order this week against Trump. Smith himself does not propose a penalty that Trump would face when he breaks it. And of course, if it had gone into immediate effect, Trump would have violated it within an hour because he repeated exactly the same dangerous threats and attacks and promises of violence and intimidation of witnesses that had caused the special counsel to ask for the gag order in the first place one week ago. Smith leaves the penalty to Judge Chutkin, but he writes, quote, The court should ensure that public statements by the defendant and his agents do not prejudice these criminal proceedings. The defendant's repeated inflammatory public statements regarding the District of Columbia, the court, prosecutors, and potential witnesses are substantially likely to materially prejudice the jury pool create fear among potential jurors and result in threats or harassment to individuals he singles out. That is strong language, which Smith couches as if, to be blunt, it is not strong language. It is, quote, the government proposes two narrowly tailored orders that impose modest, permissible restrictions on prejudicial extrajudicial conduct, unquote. And I get the feeling that what Smith writes modest permissible restrictions, he means Chutkin should use modest the way the 18th century satirist Jonathan Swift used the word modest in his searing essay, A Modest Proposal, in which the modest proposal turns out to be solving child poverty by eating babies. Jack Smith wants Chutkin to bar Trump and his lawyers. There's also a claim that Trump attorney John Lauro has violated a District of Columbia law about pretrial statements from making, quote, statements regarding the identity, testimony, or credibility of prospective witnesses and statements about any party, witness, attorney, court personnel, or potential jurors that are disparaging and inflammatory or intimidating, unquote. 
He also wants the judge to reinforce her previous order, demanding that the defense notify her in advance if it tries to do any polling of potential jurors inside the District of Columbia in hopes of buttressing its argument for a change of venue. And Smith wants all that, as he repeats again and again in the filing, because Trump's threats are an attempt to prejudice or influence or intimidate the jury pool. There are 18 separate references to Trump tampering with the jury pool. 18 in 19 pages. This is finally the revelation of that daily extrajudicial statements filing that was made under seal a week ago, and which I surmised here, as many did elsewhere, was a response to Trump's barrage of incendiary remarks, and just as importantly, a response to Trump's clear belief that he is entitled to threaten mass violence, that no law applies to him, that no one can stop him. Trump's lawyers asked for this process to be sealed from public view. Smith then filed to have it unsealed, and Judge Chutkin did that Friday afternoon, and then Smith's motion for the gag order followed, and the timing was extraordinary. It was released almost six weeks to the hour since on Friday, August 4th, Trump first broke his legal promise to not threaten or obstruct by posting, if you go after me, I'm coming after you. That post was described by Smith in the filing as a, quote, threatening message. And Smith's motion went on to say Trump, quote, has made good on his threat. Since the indictment in this case, the defendant has spread disparaging and inflammatory public posts on Truth Social on a near daily basis regarding the citizens of the District of Columbia, the court, prosecutors and prospective witnesses. Smith's 19-page filing goes on to cite, line by line, Trump's threats against the justice system, the judicial system, Judge Chutkin, Judge Chutkin's court, and the citizens of the District of Columbia. Smith's filing reproduces Trump's posts attacking, undermining, and attempting to intimidate the prosecutors in the case, including knowingly false accusations of misconduct against a junior prosecutor. Smith's filings quote Trump falsely accusing the president of the United States with ordering the indictments. Smith's filing lists Trump's posts bolstering or attacking and attempting to intimidate witnesses, including Mike Pence and the former attorney general Barr. Smith's motion is also filled with redacted names, the big black bar of a fig leaf that is unfortunately no protection for those Trump has threatened. You do not have to be an expert or even an expert at Googling to figure out that Smith is acting in defense of the likes of the Georgia election workers and former Georgia Lieutenant Governor Duncan and his own former cybersecurity director Chris Krebs, all of them victims of Trump's intimidation and the death threats and other harassment against them and others is spelled out in chilling detail. The redacted references to Georgia are not, I don't think, coincidental, because what Smith is accusing of and what Smith is asking the judge to do has bearings on Fonnie Willis's prosecution of Trump in Georgia as well. You may recall that the judge's warnings to Trump there about the terms of his release, the fact that he has been permitted to remain free on bail, are far more explicit in Georgia than what Jack Smith has gotten so far in Florida or Washington. The defendant shall make no direct or indirect threat of any nature against any witness. And yet Smith's document says Trump has threatened witnesses. The above shall include but are not limited to posts on social media or reposts of posts made by another individual on social media, unquote. Jack Smith's motion does not just quote the threats and intimidation in Trump's posts on social media or reposts of posts made by another individual. It actually includes reproductions of images of 10 of the posts. If Judge Chutkin finds against Trump in Washington, Trump could be immediately guilty of having violated his bail in Georgia. Trump, of course, replied by calling him, quote, deranged Jack Smith again, twice, online and in person, in person at the laughably titled Concerned Women for America Leadership Summit in Washington Friday night. I assume the concerned women in question are Christy Nome and Lauren 
your tax dollars on the job, Bobert. Deranged Jack Smith, he's the prosecutor, he's a deranged person, wants to take away my rights uh, under the First Amendment, wants to take away my right of speaking freely and openly. Never forget, our enemies want to stop us because we are the only ones that can stop them. They want to take away my Even before that latest insane self-martyrdom Trump posted as if Chutkin needed any more evidence, referring to himself in the third person again, mastering sophistry again, explaining that his poll numbers mean he can say anything he wants again, and claiming, quote, I am not allowed to comment. They leak, lie, and sue, and they won't allow me to speak. How else would I explain that Jack Smith is deranged, unquote? The answer, of course, is... He wouldn't. This is not about the First Amendment. This is not even about the most extreme theoretical example of the First Amendment, that cliche about yelling fire in a crowded theater. This is about a man who yells fire in a crowded theater and then goes to every other theater in the country and yells fire again and again. Even the one Lauren Boebert is out on a date in. This is about a creature who believes himself omnipotent and untouchable. This is about a potential scenario in which, if not in response to this filing by Jack Smith, then in response to some filing by some prosecutor at some point after some high number of these violations in some of these cases, a case in which a judge has to send federal or state marshals to apprehend Donald Trump and bring him to a jail or prison for detention because he has violated the terms of his bail. He is not going to stop. He does not understand the concept of having to stop. He will have to be forced to. You can insert your own thoughts about the implications of him resisting arrest. But one thing that Trump and his lawyers and his apologists and his cultists can never say is that they have not been warned. The fact that he's running a political campaign has to yield to the orderly administration of justice, Judge Chutkin told the Trump lawyer, Lauro, on the 11th of last month. If that means he can't say exactly what he wants to say about witnesses in this case, that's how it has to be. And yet he has said what he wanted to say about them repeatedly, endlessly, recklessly, dangerously, violently. And his response to this motion was to start the process all over again from the beginning. Quote, even arguably ambiguous statements from parties or their counsel, if they can be reasonably interpreted to intimidate witnesses or to prejudice potential jurors, can threaten the jurors. Judge Chutkin continued on August 11th, I will take whatever measures are necessary to safeguard the integrity of these proceedings. Judge, there is nothing ambiguous about Trump's statements. Judge, he is not going to stop. Judge, you are going to have to lock him up. Do it now. Trump's lawyers have until a week from Monday to respond. A note about the rest of this podcast. I mentioned at the beginning that this is the second gag order proposed against Trump since Wednesday. Rather than recapitulate the gag order that Judge Eileen Cannon already issued against Trump in Florida, I'm going to simply replay that segment from that podcast. Thus, the rest of this edition is not new material. If you've heard it already, feel free to hit stop. Although if I were you, I would stick around just to hear me call Bill Maher a scab scumbag again. Judge Eileen Cannon, you have unsuspected depth. Trump's appointee has stunned Trump world by not only limiting what he can say and when he can say it during his prosecution and trial for stealing our top secret documents, but also for limiting when he and his lawyers can see the war plans and other classified information he stole. This has gotten buried under the McCarthy illegal impeachment inquiry, 
which is the point of that inquiry. It is a diversion to misdirect the American news media and the public. And as we know all too well, if you spend 90 seconds trying to misdirect the American news media, you will succeed utterly. But Trump has been counting on Eileen Cannon to do his bidding for him. And in this first non-timing ruling out of Jack Smith's Florida case against Trump, the judge has given us hope that she may yet turn out to be more than just the former flamenco dancing and yoga correspondent of the Miami El Nuevo Herald newspaper. In short, Cannon's ruling is almost everything Jack Smith asked for. Any evidence marked classified, Trump cannot discuss it publicly. The evidence marked classified that Trump has lied about and said he declassified, Trump cannot discuss that publicly. The evidence marked classified that has become public knowledge without being officially declassified, Trump cannot discuss that publicly either. Trump wanted a skiff a sensitive, compartmented information facility, SCIF, reinstalled at Mar-a-Lago, and Cannon not only did not give it to him, she has ignored the request. Looks like when he or his attorneys want access to these documents, they will have to go to an established skiff under the control of a classified information security officer already assigned to the case in Florida. Trump can only look at the secrets he stole inside the skiff. He can only talk to his defense team about the secrets he stole inside the skiff. For the classified audio recordings, Trump cannot have copies. He cannot listen to them except on a standalone computer, not attached to a network, without Wi-Fi, without internet, inside the skiff, and the headphones on which he listens to the audio recordings cannot be wireless. They have to be plugged into the computer. Honest to God, Judge Cannon's order includes every protection against Trump's kleptomania except requiring him to leave a credit card at the desk. And it has a sting in its tail, and that sting is not merely be kind, please rewind. Quote, the limitations on disclosure of classified information set forth in this order are binding on defendant and his counsel, and violations may result in criminal and or civil penalties. In short, Trump could go to jail for stealing these documents, and he could also go to jail for stealing them again. And he could also also go to jail for talking about them. And wait, there's more. His Florida co-defendant, Walt Nauda, in this equation, the sap. Walt Nauda figured he could serve his lord and master Trump yet one more time by gaining his own access to the classified documents. And who knows where they'd wind up then? Judge Cannon shot that down, too, with the impeccable logic that since Nauda is charged with obstruction and lying and not secret stealing, quote, the defense may not disclose classified information to him. Hey guys, it's Ray from the Bobby Bone Show here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Let's go! Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain from the road to the hills to the trails all over. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating, up to eight passengers, yeah. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer, check out amazing national sales event deals on RAV4s, Highlanders, and more. Visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. 
BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Countdown with Keith Elberman. Still ahead on Countdown, a doubleheader. Fridays with Thurber and coming up on a very topical things I promised not to tell. The day I met Bill Maher, asshole. Turned out that day was about 20 years earlier than either of us had remembered, and he became an asshole about 40 years earlier than most of you understood. First, time for the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. Spoiler alert, the winner is Bill Maher. But first, the bronze to Congresswoman Lauren, no, this dress fits, I'll make it fit, Bobert. You saw the video of her being ejected from a Denver theater for vaping and for singing along and for illegally recording the stage version of Beetlejuice. The 36-year-old grandmother's date was reportedly an Aspen bar owner named Quinn Gallagher. And who cares? I mean, who cares? Bobert is a nitwit. The nation is full of nitwits. Her odds of meeting her end because her mouth mysteriously seals shut and traps an unsurvivable amount of hot air in her lungs. They're about two to one in favor. Casera, live and let live. But this tears it. Bobert and the rest of her nihilist Nazi party are still pushing the drag queens and LGBTQ purge stuff. And this guy Gallagher, the bar owner, in January, the bar hosted, quote, a winter wonderland burlesque and drag show at the bar of Lauren Boebert's boyfriend, starring Kendra Maddock. I mean, it's one thing to jeopardize the lives of people because of how they behave or dress or that you don't like them. It's quite another to jeopardize the lives of people because of how they behave or live or dress when you don't even care and you are just doing it to stir outrage. Watch out for those sealed lips, Bobert. The runner-up, Drew Barrymore. Well, it was a nice career. In May, the actress and TV talk show host pulled out of her gig as MC of the MTV Movie and TV Awards in solidarity with the writer's strike. And that solidarity lasted a solid three months. She says she's bringing her show back without writers. And if you think, oh, it's a talk show, it doesn't have to have writers, it just has to have talk. It has writers. Trust me, I've done talk shows. I've hosted talk shows. I've been on talk shows. It's more writers than, say, Countdown had. Now her writers will be scab writers, and she will also be a scab. Drew Scab Barrymore of the Drew Scab Barrymore Show. But our winner is, this is a surprise, it's Bill Maher. I have a confession now. I don't think I've ever actually said this before. I have been on his HBO show several times, and I had him on my old MSNBC show because the publicity was useful. And they would, by the way, fly guests to Los Angeles first class on their dime. So it was work and a free flight. And to get it, all you had to do was sort of pretend you didn't hate Bill Maher. 
I'm guilty. I pretended I didn't hate Bill Maher. In point of fact, as you will hear today, I have hated Bill Maher continuously since the spring of 1970 flipping eight. I went to college with him. For a long time, Maher's show was a good venue to reach a liberal audience until he began to turn into a, you know, complete fascist. So I last went on the show the night Trump was inaugurated. And in fact, I canceled an appearance scheduled for later in 2017. So I'm not just now bailing on this useless idiot. I bailed six years ago. Because Marr now has announced that his HBO show is also, like Drew Barrymore's, returning despite the writer's strike. Quote, It has been five months, and it is time to bring people back to work. The writers have important issues that I empathize with and hope they are addressed to their satisfaction. But they are not the only people with issues, problems, and concerns. Bill says he will, quote, honor the spirit of the strike by not doing a monologue or other written style pieces. Well, as an aside, that's good news because not one of his monologues or other pieces has been funny since about eh, 2010, 2011. But listen to this, quote, but the heart of the show is an off-the-cuff panel discussion that aims to cut through the bullshit and predictable partisanship, and that will continue. I've been in these panel discussions. A couple of them were okay. Frankly, you know how I feel about Chris Matthews. Chris Matthews did panel discussions better than Bill Maher does. I think it was 2015 when they finally invited me on, and I said, all right, I'll come out. I'll take the free flight. And I'll do the one-on-one -on -one interview, but these panels, you know what they are? They're just, they're bullshit and predictable partisanship. And, and Bill doesn't, doesn't understand the issues. I'd like to be left out of those. And the producer says, I understand. And you're right, Bill doesn't understand any of it, doesn't even try anymore. But you kind of have to be on the panel. And I went, all right, it's still a free flight and a free hotel room. Okay, fine. The panels are terrible. The panel guests are terrible. They're usually C-list at best. When I was on the panels, I was terrible. To cut through, to use Bill's word, the bullshit here, what Bill Maher is doing right now is, as always, putting himself first and then finding some rationalization to do so. This is about saving his boss, Warner Bros. Discovery Chief, HBO boss, David Zaslav, the one who says HBO is a bad name, so he changed it to Max. David Zaslav is the evil villain at the heart of this strike that the studios forced, and the Hollywood media machine, much to his surprise, is drying up and dying, and he is being blamed every day of the week. The writers and the actors have been amazingly solid, and courageous, except for Drew Barrymore and Bill Maher. And the studios are losing these strikes. So Bill is going to help the studios by being a scab, by siding with the corporations over the writers and the actors who are on a legal and justified strike, which is especially funny because, as I'll get to in a moment, the day I met Bill Maher, he called me a, quote, corporate sellout which is what he is now, a corporate sellout and a scab. And a reminder, by the way, particularly to liberals, but to, in fact, anybody contemplating going on real time now or when the writers and actors win the strike, if you go on real time on HBO, you too will be a scab. This will be a particularly bad look, Democrats, and lists will be kept. Bill... By the way, without writers, the new scab edition of Real Time with Bill Maher will be about 83 seconds long, not counting all the time that Maher leaves so he can laugh at his own jokes <laughs> in a desperate attempt to make them seem funny rather than just stupid. Maher, scab, today's worst person in the world, and he's a scab! Sometime in 1985 or 1986, 
I saw a movie on cable called DC Cab. There was a character in it. Clearly, the actor portraying him was talented and funny. But for some reason, I felt like I knew him from somewhere, and I really didn't like him. I remember the feeling was so strong that I stuck around to watch the credits to find out who he was. His name was Bill Maher? M-A-H-E-R? Well, I had a teacher named Bill Mayer, but his name had a Y in it. He was my advisor in high school. No, it wasn't him. But I knew three things. He was talented, I didn't like him, and I knew him from somewhere. This is pre-internet, of course, so no way to find out where I knew him from. Hallowell's annual film guide would be my best bet. Maybe he'd be in the new one coming out, checked calendar, just eight or nine months from now. Eventually, I found out Bill Maher was in the year ahead of mine at Cornell University. He was not at my radio station. He was not in my college. Maybe I knew him from a class somewhere. I could never nail it down. I like to say I have a photographic memory, but it's all Polaroids, and I haven't always bothered to label them. Almost everything that ever happened is stuck inside this big, empty head of mine, but often key details like who, what, when, and where are just missing Never wrote him down. And honestly, in this case, it was not worth the effort. I knew I was, what was the right word? The word was aware of him when we were both in college. Occasionally, especially after I went from ESPN to MSNBC in 1997, a writer would note the coincidence of university and years and ask me about it. And I would say just that. I don't remember if he was in a class with me or I knew him somehow, but I was aware of Bill Maher. And then 22 years ago this month, November 23rd, 2000, I went on his old show, Politically Incorrect. It used to be the late night show on ABC. This was when I was doing sports for Fox in L.A., and it was an all-sports episode. Lennox Lewis, the boxer, Mark Cuban, the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, Todd Zeal, the first baseman of the New York Mets, and me from Fox Sports. When I met Bill Maher before the show, I asked him about Cornell and whether or not we ran into each other. I didn't know anybody there. I didn't see anybody. I didn't do comedy anywhere. I didn't talk to anybody. I didn't meet you. Okay, excuse me. That settles it. Except during the recording of the show, when Maher contradicted me on some point, I got angry at him. And there was no reason to get angry at him. So I dismissed the anger and I dismissed the moment. Except on the way home, I kept thinking... I know him from school, somehow, no matter what he says. And I know I didn't like him in school. In the next decade, Bill switched to his weekly HBO political show, and I went back and turned MSNBC into a political network, and the Internet happened, so the Cornell juxtaposition became easier for reporters to stumble over. So I would tell them the same thing. I can't remember the details, but for 29 years now, I have been convinced I was aware of Bill Maher at Cornell. Finally came the day, March 20th, 2009, when they asked me to go on real time. And Bill Maher, Cornell University 78, asked me, Cornell University 79, something about colleges. And I said, well, as you know, we overlapped at Cornell. And I don't know if we met, but I was aware of you there. And he interrupted and said, no, you weren't. And I just went back and answered his question. Now, after every episode of his program, Marr has, or at least had, a little party backstage. I mean, catered with booze and with more guests than there are people in the studio audience and usually a bunch of models. Having done that show four times where they will fly you in first class and put you up for the weekend in L.A. just to do their show and there's a party I began to suspect that, like many of the guests, Bill Maher does the show just so he can have the party. Anyway, not long after it started, overcomes Maher, and he's mad at me. And mind you, even if his allegation that he is 5 feet 8 is correct, I'm just under 6'4", so he's giving up a lot of height during an argument. And he starts yapping about how I should stop saying I was aware of him at Cornell, and I'm just trying to get publicity off something that never happened, and who could remember that kind of crap anyway? And he never talked to anybody in four years in college because, quote, except for the Ithaca High School students I sold drugs to, unquote. And I notice he's getting heated. And this is just triggering that core belief of mine that I was aware of him in college And I didn't like him, and now it becomes clear to me, he didn't like me either. 
He's getting loud enough, and he's swinging his arms around now, and it looks kind of funny, but apparently it happens in the office sometimes. And this is when Scott Carter, who was the executive producer whom I definitely did know since like 1992 when he worked at Comedy Central with my friend Alan Havey, Scott Carter comes over to defuse the situation. Scott was a three-piece suit kind of guy with the thumbs tucked in the vest who would call a group of men fellows, as in, say, fellows. So Scott comes over and says, say, fellows, with your Cornell alumni reunion here. And, of course, this makes Bill Maher even angrier. Let me ask you something. I used to drive down from Hobart to see concerts at Cornell. Have to say, I think Cornell was the leading concert school in the nation back in our day. And now Scott starts to list who he saw in concert at Cornell. Robert Palmer and the famous Grateful Dead concert at Cornell at Barton Hall. He was there. And I say, I went to Springsteen. And Mar mumbles something about Loggins and Messina. And I know what Carter is doing here. He's diffusing. And we do a couple of rounds of who saw which Cornell concert. And finally, I say, I can top both of you comic geniuses. I saw Robert Klein in concert at Cornell. Now, it is criminal, but there's an excellent chance you may not know who Robert Klein is. Suffice to say, as prominent a comedian in the 60s, 70s, 80s as George Carlin or Richard Pryor, HBO itself was built on annual George Carlin concerts and annual Robert Klein concerts and everybody else. And Robert Klein wasn't quite as deep or eternal as George Carlin, but he was really on the money during Watergate and during Reagan. So I say, I saw Robert Klein in concert at Cornell, and Marr looks at me funny and not angrily and says quietly, I was at that too. I saw Robert Klein too. And I don't really register that Marr's mood has now utterly changed. He's not angry. He's confused. Well, I say, I can still top you because after that concert, I interviewed Robert Klein. Now Bill Maher starts to squint, and he looks at me, and he looks at Scott Carter, and he looks back at me, and he says, wait, I interviewed Klein after that concert, too. And I'm smiling through all this and smiling and smiling and smiling. And then suddenly, simultaneously, it hits Bill Maher and me at the same moment in the same fullness of detail. And I stop smiling and I shout at Bill Maher, you! And he pulls his arms in towards his stomach and kind of bends forward at the waist and covers his face with his hands. And he says, oh, God, I'm so sorry. Jesus, it can't be. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And while the anger wells up inside me so powerfully I can almost see it in my own eyeballs, Bill Maher's concert-going producer Scott Carter is really confused. Say, fellows, did I miss something? Did I have a brief stroke or episode? And I say, Bill and I just remembered how I happened to be aware of him in school. And Mars still has got his hands over his face, and people are looking at us, and Bill is shouting apologies, and I say, you want to tell him, or should I? And Mar just shakes his body no and mumbles, no, God, you do it, I can't, I can't, I can't. And it all came back to me. For years, I would tell people the story of the Robert Klein concert at Cornell University in 1978. Our radio station co-sponsored his appearance along with the Cornell Concert Commission, and in the contract, we specified that a couple of us real comedy nerds at the radio station would get to go backstage afterwards and tape a brief 10 or 15-minute interview with Robert Klein. Basically, we paid him, not much, but we paid him to do an interview. And when my pal Andy Grossman and I get backstage to talk to Robert Klein and we have our two microphones and two mic stands and three tape recorders, there is this guy, this short guy, and he's yelling at the chief of the Cornell Concert Commission and he's yelling at Robert Klein's manager and he's demanding that he should get to interview Robert Klein because like Klein, this kid says he is a stand-up comedian and he publishes the Cornell Humor Magazine and he points at me and he says he should get priority over these, quote, Corporate sellouts from the Cornell radio station. I hated him on sight. Oh, wait, I say to him in 1978, and he's small and he's got dirty, stringy hair and he's loud. And I say, 
You are the publisher of the Cornell Humor magazine, the Cornell Widow? And he snorts and says, I wouldn't get caught dead publishing that corporate sellout Cornell Widow. And so I say, oh, so then that means you're the publisher of the Cornell Alternative Humor magazine, the not-so-big red or whatever it is they call it. He says, no way, they're corporate sellouts. I publish this. And he pulls out a stack of mimeographed pages stapled together, and there's like a drawing on the front of a naked girl, and handwritten it says it's his comedy magazine. And I look at Robert Klein's manager, and I say, so it's 10 o'clock, and if you leave now while, while this idiot is screwing this up, the, the limo can still get Mr. Klein to Elaine's in the city before it closes, right? And the manager is wildly impressed. You know of Elaine's? And I said, yes. And I felt like an adult. And I also said, if we give this guy five minutes of our time right now while we're setting up our tape recorders, can we still have 10 minutes with Mr. Klein? And the manager says, good plan. I like the way you think. And he points to the kid and gestures for him to come along. No, the kid shouts. I want half an hour. These corporate sellouts deserve nothing. And now I'm getting angry. I say, buddy, so far, all the corporations in the world have paid me about 100 bucks. So I threaten him. Now, mind you, I believe this is literally true. Since 1967, when I was eight years old, I have started two fist fights. Two in 55 years, I am a man of peace. I am loud, but I am a man of peace. But I say to this guy, you now have two choices, kid. Five minutes with Robert Klein, or I hit you in the face. And he runs to where Klein's manager is still gesturing towards him, and he screams, corporate sellout! And he disappears to do his interview, and behind him he leaves his little homemade mimeograph, 10 or 12 page humor publication. And I pick it up and I read it and register it and dismiss it before I leave the building. And if I had only remembered what it said on the cover, all the years of mystery and I was aware of him and all that would never have happened because the cover of the magazine read Bill Maher's Comedy Magazine by Bill Maher. And now back in, well, Technically, this is correct. Back in real time at the party in the Hollywood studio in 2009, the producer Scott Carter says nothing. And Bill Maher is still doubled over in shame. And I say, are you satisfied that I was aware of you? And he mumbles, yes. And I say, will you ever question my memory again? And he mumbles, no. And he says, if I need him to do my show or a charity benefit or something, just call and he says he's ashamed, and he offers me his hand to shake, and we shake, and finally I say, and, and by the way, Bill Maher of Bill Maher's Comedy Magazine by Bill Maher, are you a corporate sellout? And he says, kinda. And that's how I was aware of Bill Maher in college. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like the panoramic moon roof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. 
With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I have argued before that James Thurber is the greatest American humorist, and it dawns on me that the argument is not unlike the idea that Shohei Otani of the Los Angeles Angels is almost automatically the most valuable player in baseball each year because he is an all-star hitter and an all-star pitcher in the same body. James Thurber was a brilliant writer, and in his spare time, he was an equally brilliant, almost avant-garde artist in the same body. His simple drawings depict the most complex of emotions and comedic situations. His dogs are immortal. And then there were his captions. Well, I can't do anything with his drawings in a podcast, so I'll just read. And I will read you now in this episode what is probably his most famous story. From My Life in Hard Times, The Night the Bed Fell, by James Thurber. I suppose that the high watermark of my youth in Columbus, Ohio, was the night the bed fell on my father. It makes a better recitation unless, as some friends of mine have said, one has heard it five or six times than it does a piece of writing, for it is almost necessary to throw furniture around, shake doors, and bark like a dog to lend the proper atmosphere and verisimilitude to what is admittedly a somewhat incredible tale. Still. It did take place. It happened then that my father had decided to sleep in the attic one night to be away where he could think. My mother opposed the notion strongly because she said the old wooden bed up there was unsafe, it was wobbly, and the heavy headboard would crash down on father's head in case the bed fell and kill him. There was no dissuading him, however, and at a quarter past ten he closed the attic door behind him and went up the narrow, twisting stairs. We later heard ominous creakings as he crawled into bed. Grandfather, who usually slept in the attic bed when he was with us, had disappeared some days before. On those occasions, he was usually gone six or eight days and returned growling and out of temper with the news that the Federal Union was run by a passel of blockheads and that the Army of the Potomac didn't have any more chance than a fiddler's bitch. We had visiting us at the time a nervous first cousin of mine named Briggs Beale, who believed that he was likely to cease breathing when he was asleep. It was his feeling that if he were not awakened every hour during the night, he might die of suffocation. He had been accustomed to setting an alarm clock to ring at intervals until morning, but I persuaded him to abandon this. He slept in my room, and I told him that I was such a light sleeper that if anybody quit breathing in the same room with me, I would wake instantly. He tested me the first night, which I had suspected he would, by holding his breath after my regular breathing had convinced him I was asleep. I was not asleep, however, and called to him. This seemed to allay his fears a little, but he took the precaution of putting a glass of spirits of camphor on a little table at the head of his bed. In case I didn't arouse him until he was almost gone, he said, he would sniff the camphor, a powerful reviver. Briggs was not the only member of his family who had his crotchets. Old Aunt Melissa Beale, who could whistle like a man with two fingers in her mouth, suffered under the premonition that she was destined to die on South High Street because she had been born on South High Street and married on South High Street. Then there was Aunt Sarah Schoaf, 
who never went to bed at night without the fear that a burglar was going to get in and blow chloroform under her door through a tube. To avert this calamity, for she was in greater dread of anesthetics than of losing her household goods, she always piled her money, silverware, and other valuables in a neat stack just outside her bedroom, with a note reading, this is all I have, please take it and do not use your chloroform, as this is all I have. Aunt Gracie Schof also had a burglar phobia, but she met it with more fortitude. She was confident that burglars had been getting into her house every night for 40 years. The fact that she never missed anything was, to her, no proof to the contrary. She always claimed that she scared them off before they could take anything by throwing shoes down the hallway. When she went to bed, she piled, where she could get at them handily, all the shoes there were about her house. Five minutes after she had turned off the light, she would sit up in bed and say, Hark! Her husband, who had learned to ignore the whole situation as long ago as 1903, would either be sound asleep or pretend to be sound asleep. In either case, he would not respond to her tugging and pulling so that presently she would arise, tiptoe to the door, open it slightly, and heave a shoe down the hall in one direction and its mate down the hall in the other direction. Some nights she threw them all. Some nights only a couple of pair. But I am straying from the remarkable incidents that took place during the night that the bed fell on father. By midnight, we were all in bed. The layout of the rooms and the disposition of their occupants is important to an understanding of what later occurred. In the front room upstairs, just under father's attic bedroom, were my mother and my brother Herman, who sometimes sang in his sleep, usually marching through Georgia or onward Christian soldiers. Briggs Beale and myself were in a room adjoining this one. My brother Roy was in a room across the hall from ours. Our bull terrier Rex slept in the hall. My bed was an army cot, one of those affairs which are made wide enough to sleep on comfortably only by putting up, flat with the middle section, the two sides which ordinarily hang down like the sideboards of a drop-leaf table. When these sides are up, it is perilous to roll too far toward the edge, for then the cot is likely to tip completely over, bringing the whole bed down on top of one with a tremendous banging crash. This, in fact, is precisely what happened about two o'clock in the morning. It was my mother who, in recalling the scene later, first referred to it as the night the bed fell on your father. Always a deep sleeper and slow to arouse, I had lied to Briggs. I was at first unconscious of what had happened when the iron cot rolled me onto the floor and toppled over on me. It left me still warmly bundled up and unhurt, for the bed rested above me like a canopy. Hence, I did not wake up, only reached the edge of consciousness and went back. The racket, however, instantly awakened my mother in the next room, who came to the immediate conclusion that her worst dread was realized. The big wooden bed upstairs had fallen on father. She therefore screamed, let's go to your poor father. It was this shout, rather than the noise of my cot falling, that awakened Herman in the same room with her. He thought that Mother had become, for no apparent reason, hysterical. You're all right, Mama, he shouted, trying to calm her. They exchanged shout for shout for perhaps ten seconds. Let's go to your poor father, and you're all right. That woke up Briggs. By this time, I was conscious of what was going on in a vague way but did not yet realize that I was under my bed instead of on it. Briggs, awakening in the midst of loud shouts of fear and apprehension, came to the quick conclusion that he was suffocating and that we were all trying to bring him out. With a low moan, he grasped the glass of camphor at the head of his bed, and instead of sniffing it, he poured it over himself. The room reeked of camphor. Ugh. Ah, choked Briggs like a drowning man, for he had almost succeeded in stopping his breath under the deluge of pungent spirits. He leaped out of bed and groped toward the open window, but he came up against one that was closed. With his hand, he beat out the glass, and I could hear it crash and tinkle on the alleyway below. It was at this juncture that I, in trying to get up, had the uncanny sensation of feeling my bed above me. 
foggy with sleep, I now suspected in my turn that the whole uproar was being made in a frantic endeavor to extricate me from what must be an unheard of and perilous situation. Get me out of this, I bawled. Get me out. I think I had the nightmarish belief that I was entombed in a mine. Gasped Briggs, floundering in his camphor. By this time, my mother, still shouting, pursued by Herman, still shouting, was trying to open the door to the attic in order to go up and get my father's body out of the wreckage. The door was stuck, however, and would not yield. Her frantic pulls on it only added to the general banging and confusion. Roy and the dog were now up, the one shouting questions, the other barking. Father, farthest away and soundest sleeper of all, had by this time been awakened by the battering on the attic door. He decided that the house was on fire. I'm coming, I'm coming, he wailed in a slow, sleepy voice. It took him many minutes to regain full consciousness. My mother, still believing he was caught under the bed, detected in his I'm coming the mournful, resigned note of one who is preparing to meet his maker. He's dying, she shouted. I'm all right, Briggs yelled to reassure her. I'm all right. He still believed that it was his own closeness to death that was worrying mother. I found at last the light switch in my room, unlocked the door, and Briggs and I joined the others at the attic door. The dog, who never did like Briggs, jumped for him, assuming that he was the culprit in whatever was going on, and Roy had to throw Rex and hold him. We could hear Father crawling out of the bed upstairs. Roy pulled the attic door open with a mighty jerk, and Father came down the stairs, sleepy and irritable, but safe and sound. My mother began to weep when she saw him. Rex began to howl. What in the name of God is going on here? asked Father. The situation was finally put together like a giant jigsaw puzzle. Father caught a cold from prowling around in his bare feet, but there were no other bad results. I'm glad, said Mother, who always looked on the bright side of things, that your grandfather wasn't here. I've done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. Here are the credits. Most of the music arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel, who are the Countdown Musical Directors. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray. Produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olderman theme from ESPN2, and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc. Musical comments by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was my friend John Dean. Everything else was pretty much my fault. So that's Countdown for this, the 983rd day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Convict him now while we still can. The next scheduled Countdown is Monday or Tuesday. I, I gotta tell you, I gotta shake this throat thing. So if there's no real news over the weekend, I'm just going to take Monday off, okay? One way or the other, your subscription will notify you. And bulletins as the news warrants anyway, because me, I'm your local neighborhood masochist. Till then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Bill Maher is a scab. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes, Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zikazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Videos moderated by real people who review content before it's posted to the feed. I love the dance challenges. I love that it's Kids Safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids. <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free.